And I'd invite you to get your Bible out. If you don't have one, there's some in the pews. And turn to Psalm 107. Psalm 107 will be our text this morning. Sorry, Mike and Chad, I was unable to hastily rewrite my sermon to tie it in from our J-term class. I'm going a different direction this morning. So, um, before I read our chapter we're going to look at today, uh, I want to point out three things to be looking for as we read this psalm this morning. First thing is, as you know, psalms are songs to be sung. In this particular psalm this morning, I won't uh, have us sing it necessarily, although I tried my hand a few times this week at writing some refrains, but none obviously made it to our worship this morning, still in, in the woodshed. Um, but there is a actual, this unique psalm has, has a refrain that repeats four times, in fact, and because of that, I thought, man, I want, I want the congregation to participate in this. So as we read this morning, I will get to verse 8, verse 15, 21, and 31 is this common, this, the same chorus that we're going to read actually together. You'll join me in this. Um, so let's practice. Okay, this is our rehearsal, if you will. Uh, look down at verse 8. Let's read this together. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Very good. So don't worry, I'll cue you when it's your time to join in in the reading. It just, you know, when you see the words, let them thank, you'll be, you'll be cued. The second thing I want to point out this morning is that this psalm presents four pictures for us. Uh, four pictures or situations of God's providential care in the lives of his people from verses 4 to 32. And each of these pictures start with this word some. We'll see the word some and then we'll, you know, psalmist will go on to describe the situation. Um, so pay attention when you hear that word some. Listen to their situation, read the refrain with me, and then listen to how God responds to their cries. And then thirdly, don't think of these four pictures as four separate groups of people in different times or places. Think of them as four pictures of the same reality, the same reality of what it's like to be in exile, what it's like to suffer, what it's like to cry out to God for redemption and see how he redeems. So let's pray. Gracious God, as we come to your word this morning, uh, we confess that we need your Holy Spirit to bring light and understanding so that we can know your truth. We need what this word has to say about your steadfast love and about our gratitude that should flow from that reality. We know that our hearts are not always ready to receive what you want to give, so please take this moment now and prepare us. You know what we need this morning. We've sung your praises, we've confessed, we have turned to you for help. I pray that our hearts are ready to receive your word. Cause it to come alive. Instruct us, correct us, encourage us, and help us take delight in you, our true source of joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. 
Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in, and then together let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. And together, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. And then our response together to this word is that the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So in 2010, American novelist Lauren Hillenbrand wrote a book entitled Unbroken, World War II story of survival, resilience, and redemption. You may have read the book, or maybe you saw the movie adaptation that was released in 2014. The story is based on a real-time war survivor. His name was Louis or Louis Zamperini. He gained national attention for being a runner in the 1936 Berlin Olympics, but what he's more famous for, what he's more known for, is his miraculous survival during World War II. He was drafted into the army to fly the B-24 bomber plane, and while on a mission over the South Pacific Ocean, their, their plane is shot down out of the sky, and he and two of his fellow soldiers survive on life rafts for 47 days. Somehow, he survived shark-infested waters, strafing from Japanese planes, the unrelenting heat of the sun, terrible storms in the ocean, dehydration, and then eventually he gets picked up by a Japanese patrol boat and put in a prisoner of war camp for two years where he suffers 
horrendous torture. Somehow he survives that as well and returns home as a war hero, comes back to America a celebrity because he was unbroken. But things back home were not so easy. His post-war life was spiraling downward as he struggled with alcohol, fits of anger, his marriage was falling apart. But then, by some prompting by his wife, she urged him, said, told him there was a, a Billy Graham event, a crusade happening in Los Angeles that he should go attend. Uh, rather reluctantly, he did, and it was there that he heard the gospel and received Christ into his life. And here's a quote from Louis. He puts it this way. He said, I dropped to my knees and for the first time in my life truly humbled myself before the Lord. I asked him to forgive me for not having kept the promise I'd made during the war and for my sinful life. I made no excuses. I did not rationalize. I did not blame. He, being God, had said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So I took him at his word, begged for his pardon, and asked Jesus to come into my life. Now people say he really was a different person after the transforming love of God changed him. And what his story captures, I think, is a man who may have been unbroken by war and the experiences that he had in the war, but he was broken by the grace and power of God in his life to make him aware of his sin and turn to Christ by faith. And as I was thinking about Louis Zamperini's story this week, I was a bit shocked, actually, to, to realize that this is a man who experienced, literally, in his life, all four of these pictures we see in Psalm 107 this morning. He experienced being lost, wandering, hungry, thirsty. He experienced literal prison, being subject to hard labor with no help. He experienced foolishness of sinful ways and felt the sickening effects on his body. And finally, he experienced being storm-tossed at sea. Now, I'm guessing that we can probably see ourselves in at least a few, if not one, of these stories, maybe not even on a literal level, but at least a metaphorical level. This is our story, too, a sinful yet redeemed people. This is your story. And see, as we look more closely this morning at this psalm, what we'll quickly see the power of God, the transforming love of God, this steadfast love is able to change our lives and how we are to be thankful for this. Now see, if someone were to tell you, just be thankful, right? I don't know if you've ever heard a parent say that to their child, just be like, just be thankful, would you, for once in your life? You know, there's not like a, a switch we can flip on the back of our neck as much as we maybe would appreciate that to just all of a sudden feel thankful, right? There, there has to be a cause. There has to be a reason for genuine thankfulness. And this morning, what I hope to is to go right to that source as believers in Jesus and say, what is this source for us, for our gratitude? And unfortunately, it, it's not our default mode. It's not where we naturally live, right? To be thankful people, our sin causes us to struggle with feelings of entitlement, of presumption. We think God owes us something because, you know, we're really not that bad at people. Like, I'm, actually, I'm a pretty good guy. Like, I, I try and do good things. You might think, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I pay my taxes. I obey all the speed limits. I, you know, we think we're actually pretty good people. And because of that, 
we're entitled to God's favor. God loves to pour out blessings on his people, right? So what happens when we don't feel such blessings from the Lord? We can become bitter. We can become bitter at God, bitter at each other, bitter at life. And what this passage shows us this morning as we look at it is not only that we are to be a thankful people, but for what we are to be thankful. So let's look closely at Psalm 107. I'll read the first three verses again for us, this intro. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. So in these intro verses, they act as sort of a trumpet call, kind of an exhortation for us. Pay attention here to what you're about to hear. Give thanks to the Lord, this all caps Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. We're to give thanks. Why? For he's good. And his steadfast love endures forever. He says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Why? Well, he's redeemed us from trouble. He's gathered the redeemed together, everyone from every direction. And this gives us a little clue as to the context of this psalm, how the original audience would have perhaps heard it. See, the context is most likely this post-exilic community of worshipers, Israelites who had been in exile in Babylon and now returned home. And now they're figuring out what does life look like now that we are freed from exile. And these opening verses of Psalm 107 seems to give a, a bit of a response to the question that was posed in the book, or I should say, sorry, the chapter before in 106. If you look over to the left side, at least it's on my Bible, it's on the left bottom side, 106, verse 47, this psalmist says, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. See, this Psalm 107 is that answer for God's people. We are gathered. They're gathered together now, back from exile. And you might be wondering, okay, where does this sit in relation to the minor prophets, okay? Now, this major theme that Chad has helped us to keep in the forefront of our minds, that's actually not his doing. Thank you, Chad. But it's, it's the, the Word's doing, right? The, the Word of God is, is showing us in the minor prophets this covenant formula emphasizing the steadfast love of God for his people, that we belong to him, that our eternal security does not depend upon us, but upon the covenant faithfulness of Yahweh, who shows us steadfast love. And and I think it was last week or the week before, Chad directed us to a passage in Exodus 34, which speaks of who this covenant-keeping God is. But we see it echoed as well in, in chapter 86 of Psalm Uh, of the Psalms, if you want to turn there. Chapter 86, verse 15, repeats what we read in Exodus 34. It says, But you, O Lord, are a, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And the words steadfast love are used over a hundred times of Yahweh in the Psalms. This Hebrew word, you know it by now, I hope, right? Chesed, that's the word. It's this word that denotes God's attitude of faithful, loving commitment towards his people. And we were again recently reminded of this in the end of the book of Jonah, 
When we were there a few weeks ago, Jonah's prayer, he says, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. See, this is who God is. I don't know what picture you have in your mind when you think of God, but this is where you should land. A covenant-keeping, merciful, faithful God. And this God has brought a remnant back to Jerusalem to be worshiping together, and the psalmist tells them, be thankful. Not necessarily based on your circumstances, but based on the character of God. In these intro verses, we Uh, after these intro verses, we see four pictures as as we've read already, to see what it's like to be in exile in your sin and then to be redeemed by God's mercy and grace. So as we look at these four pictures a little more closely this morning, I want you to think of this pattern. It's a four-word pattern, if you will, and you want to write it down, you can. Problem, prayer, deliverance, thanksgiving. It's what we see in each of these pictures. We see the problem we see the prayer, we see deliverance, and then we see thanksgiving. So verse four, let's pick up this first scene. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry soul he fills with good things. See, some wandered. Some wandered. This is a picture of people who are lost, of people who have no home, who have no city. And they're hungry. They're thirsty. They're isolated. They feel exhausted. Uh, sounds like a parent of a newborn, probably. Um, this doesn't seem to be the fault of in, the wanderer necessarily. We're not given any indication of that, and that it was some type of sin that they committed that got them in this situation. It just seems that they're in this situation because we're, they're part of a, of a broken and sinful world. It's the situation many believers in Jesus find themselves in when they look at their place in this world in relation to the heavenly kingdom that awaits us. They realize this has got to be temporary. They look around the world and they see all that's happening. And you go, this, this isn't it. This isn't our eternal home, is it? The Bible speaks of believers as being aliens, being pilgrims in this life, and that we'll experience distress of physical and spiritual hunger and thirst. But when God's people call out to him, he hears them. And he delivers them. He leads them by a straight way and they they reached a city to dwell in. God brought them home. And we see this theme in Hebrews 11, if you want to turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10. Hebrews 11:10, for he, speaking of Abraham, actually, usually when you say he you say, Jesus, right? <laughs> this context is actually the, the hall of faith, if you will, in this chapter of people who have gone before us. And speaking of Abraham, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then skip down to verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the, the things promised, but having seen them 
and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But, as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then flip uh, over a page, chapter 13, verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. See, all of God's people in the Old Testament and New Testament recognize that they have no abiding city here, but are looking for a city whose architect and builder is God, a heavenly city that will truly be their own. Now, it's not that we neglect seeking the good of our own present cities, right, and the places in which we dwell and live, but it's this realization that our present home is temporary. And until we get to that heavenly city, we too can find ourselves as wanderers, hungry, thirsty, awaiting for the Lord to satisfy us. Psalm 109.7, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. We look to God for satisfaction. And we sang about this this morning in our opening hymn. As we were singing, guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I'm weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. If you don't want any more, you're satisfied, right? Stop, please. No, I'm good. I don't need any more. I have all I need in Jesus. God has satisfied me. I don't need that. I don't need that. All I need is the Lord. And this is this picture for us of wanderers being brought home, returning to the Lord, being satisfied. And so as we look at this fourfold pattern, if you will, the problem, prayer, deliverance, and thanksgiving, we saw the problem is that some were wandering Hungry, thirsty, fainting, they cried out to God in prayer, and they're delivered. God brings them to a place to live, and this should prompt in us thankfulness. Because we know, we know our tendency to wander. And in God's kindness, he leads us back to safety, to peace in his presence. And we have the hope of knowing that one day we will look with our very eyes on the city that he has designed, that he has built our eternal home that should never leave our view. So some wandered. The second picture begins at verse 10. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were imprisoned. Now this picture is perhaps the most descriptive of the Israelites' experience of being captives and exiles in Babylon. And we see in this picture the cause, right? We might not have in the first one, but in this one, we see the cause of their turmoil being brought about by rebelling against the words of God and spurning, or 
you could say ignoring or treating with contempt the counsel of the Most High. And what is the result? Iron chains, bitter labor, darkness, and deepest gloom. See, even if a believer, even if you or I never experienced literal prison, there is a very real spiritual picture here we can't miss. That ignoring and rebelling against the word of God and his counsel will lead to some real consequences. I know it sounds a little bit like Captain Obvious here, but we need to remember that disobedience to God, rebelling against his good, kind, and gracious law leads to every type of enslavement and addiction to sinful patterns of behavior. You might think it's freedom to be able to live how you want to, but that's not real freedom. Real freedom is actually living according to how you were created to live. And for the believer in God, that is under his authority and under his guidance. Because we hear all the time the narrative of the culture says, if it feels good, do it. If it feels right, do it. Follow your heart. Go for it, right? That must be put in your, you know, this kind of goes back to our, a little bit of what we talked about during our J-term class this morning. It's how, just how I am, right? But that's the narrative of the world. The narrative of the Bible says know who you are, right? Know who you are. Know who God is and who you're created to be. Now live according to that design. Guess where that will lead you? True freedom. True freedom. The sinner will only experience the darkness of a conscience and soul weighed down by shame and a sense of condemnation from which they cannot free themselves. But even when we have brought bondage upon ourselves and feel imprisoned by our sin, we cannot miss this, that the Lord delights for us to cry out to him. There's hope for the imprisoned. He's able to break chains and cut through bars of iron. Reminds me of this verse uh, from another hymn, And Can It Be? We don't sing this very often here, but maybe we will next week. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose and went forth and followed thee. Verse 16, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Listen, no matter how great your sin, how imprisoned you feel, when you cry out to the Lord for help, he will hear you. See, the problem is that some were imprisoned in the shadow of death, but they cried to God for help and he broke their bonds, he brought them out of darkness. And this should prompt in us who know this to be true, Gratitude, thankfulness, because it's in Christ we're freed from the imprisonment of sin. The cross and the empty grave bring us that freedom to all who believe. And let me encourage you this morning, those of you who maybe have never truly surrendered your life to Christ. You can feel that vice grip of sin on you and your heart, and you've never really truly asked God to free you. What's stopping you from crying out to him in prayer? 
What's stopping you? The free gift being offered to you from, through Christ is forgiveness. It's salvation. It's, it's freedom. It's new life. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. See, right after saying this, Paul goes on to say that God bestows riches on all who call on him. See, the path of salvation is from poverty to riches. It's from from captivity to sin to freedom. And our Lord Jesus is inviting you to rely on him, to trust him, to surrender to him. And so far we've seen God help wanderers find a home God releases prisoners from chains. Next we see the way of the foolish. Verse 17. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. You see, some were fools. Now, this group of people are foolish because they loved sin so much. It's not that they were unintelligent, how we might think of fools or call someone a fool, which you shouldn't do, by the way. Fools in the Bible are not just regular old sinners, they're those who have become so destructively self-absorbed and self-deceived. They have lifestyles that are so self-indulgent that, that lead to damaged physical and spiritual health. Think Proverbs 1-7 here, perhaps, in this contrast between someone who fears the Lord, which is the beginning of knowledge, to someone who despises wisdom and instruction. This is the person who is the fool. Their rebellion has brought about this consequence of having an effect on them physically, so much so that they they lose their appetite. They can't even eat. They loathe eating any type of food. And they draw near to the gates of death, as it says. And this is again a picture of the destructive power of sin and the dangerous path that it can put people on. Many think, oh, no, 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 it's not that big a deal. Like, I, it's okay. I, I can do this particular sin or that particular sin because nobody will know. But that's foolishness because God knows, right? He knows every sin. He knows everything. And and every sin always, ever leads to one place, and that is death. Now, it might take a few steps along the way to get there, but it's true that the wages of sin is death. But again, we see in this picture the Lord is delighted to hear their cry. And he not only forgives them, but he heals them. He delivers them from destruction. And after this refrain, which exhorts them to give thanks, they're told something new here, it seems, something different. They're they're supposed to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. That's in verse 22 there. So we see here another appropriate response to what God has done, not just speaking, telling Uh, God and others are gratitude and thankfulness, but it's to sing. It's to sing. 
God gives them songs to sing. Like flip to the right a few chapters, Psalm 116. Maybe this was a song that came from their lips. Psalm 116, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. These Psalms and many others are in the Bible for us for this exact reason, to give us words to express our worship of God and gratitude for his steadfast love and goodness. The fourth century Christian leader Athanasius summed it up this way when he said that while most of the scripture speaks to us, the Psalms speak for us. And in this third picture, we've seen that the problem is that some were fools and they suffered physically and spiritually for their sin, but they cried out to the Lord and he delivered them. He sent his word and he healed them. Now, don't miss that. Don't miss that. Verse 20, he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. The healing came through God's word. God's word is powerful. It's effective. It reaches those places of hurt in our lives and it heals because it's, it's from God himself. And this should prompt thankfulness in us as shown in singing of all God has done in songs of joy. And then finally, this fourth picture that starts in verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business in the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storms be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Now some were storm-tossed. Now this is a people not necessarily, again, experiencing troubles because of their own sinful folly, it seems, but because, again, they live in a sinful world. Forces around us are far beyond us, right? Now, sea travel is a great metaphor for life, isn't it? Now, we don't necessarily know that too well living in Kansas. Uh, I mean, those squalls on Clinton Lake can get pretty gnarly. Am I right? Um, But we understand. Like, we get this. We know the power of the ocean. If not witnessed it in real life, we've seen it, right, in movies or television or So here you have sailors going about their business on the ocean, navigating their normal trade routes when storms come up and they find themselves, as the word says, in great waters. The waves lift their ships so high that they feel like they touch the heavens and so low that they feel like they go down into the depths. If your stomach is turning right now, good job, you're in the the story. 
These storms made them stagger like drunken men, it says, on the deck of a ship, and they were at their wit's end. Not necessarily frustrated is what this, this phrase means, but it literally means their skills as sailors were completely tapped out. Your footnote reads something like, all their wisdom was swallowed up, right? There was, there was no amount of their own navigational skills or, as, as sailors that could save them. Their own power of positive thinking or <laughs> seminars on self-help they attended or self-care, it's of no use in this situation because life's troubles will sink us if we rely on our own ability to rescue ourselves. There's a lot of great wisdom out there. Now, don't get me wrong, like that's gonna help you do better, right? Get healthy, progress in your career, um, be a better insert, whatever you wanna be a better here. But let me remind you, let me remind us this morning, I need this too, that there's no wisdom greater than God's wisdom that we see and read in his word. That we need his wisdom above any other wisdom. And these sailors pray to the Lord and he hears them and he stills the storm. God is our haven in the midst of the storms of life. And this pattern in the New Testament as we see is that God helps us, it seems, in either you know, one of two ways. When you look at the life of, of Jesus, either in Mark 4, where he calms the storm, he brings it to stillness, or he enables us to walk through the middle of the storm with our eyes fixed on Jesus, as you remember the life of Peter. And this fourth picture shows us a people storm-tossed, but after crying out to God in prayer, the waters are quieted, and they're brought safely to their desired haven. And the response of gratitude in verse 32 is to give thanks to the Lord in the congregation of the people in public worship. Their gratitude had a communal aspect to it. And this kind of reminds you, hopefully, of verse 2, as we read earlier, where we're told to let the redeemed of the Lord say so. We're told to speak of to others of the powerful works of God, to not just witness it and then go, hmm. You know, have those like moments that we sometimes have. Now, as someone who doesn't always have a lot of words, now I know I'm you know, preaching for 40 minutes or however long this goes. I don't usually have a lot of words. You can ask my wife. I'm challenged in this a lot to say, wow, if I hear and see and God puts in my mind something for which I am grateful, I should say it out loud. I should speak it to others. I know we can run the risk of like sounding cheesy, be like, Thank you, God, just what a beautiful day. You know, like, that's okay, say that. If it's from your heart, if it's genuine, let it overflow. Just let it be known of our gratitude. Speak it. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And that's what these storm-tossed sailors were commanded to do. And then notice as well in verse 25, he commanded the sea and he raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea who caused this storm? It was God. It was God who caused the storm. He commanded it. But then verse 29, he made the storm be still. It was God who hushed the seas. See, the problem for them is that storms arose and they lost all their courage and they felt completely helpless. But the, 
the prayer was to cry out to God and they were delivered. He calmed the storms and brought peace. They're to show their gratitude by speaking to others of what God had done. Now, these four pictures of the transforming love of God and the life of the redeemed is to remind us that when we cry out to God, he will deliver us. And, and that, that his response, God's response should well up within us thankful hearts, right? And by looking at these four pictures, I'm guessing that you can easily, I hope, see yourself in at least one of them, a real life wandering, perhaps, not satisfied with where you are in life. Maybe you feel imprisoned to a particular situation or struggling with sin that has its effects on you, possibly physically, or feeling tossed about by every wind and storm of our culture. This is us, this is our life. And as we cry out to God, we experience real deliverance from these situations. And we find ourselves, I hope, in a place where it's hard not to be thankful, right? When you really stop to think about it. But this begs the question, as I was working through this this week, I'm like, well, these are great. These are all four stories. It'd be good, you know, 27-minute sitcoms, you know, because you got to leave time for commercials. Um, but they all end up happy in the end, right? It's good endings, right? But what, what happens when in that progress of the problem, the prayer, and the deliverance, and the thankfulness, what happens when after the prayer, there's silence, and you don't see a lot of deliverance, and that gap gets really, really large. What do we do with that? Now, I'm sure it sure is hard to be thankful in that situation, in the midst of struggle. Now, at one level, we say this, all those who know God and trust in Christ as revealed in the scriptures, who believe in him for salvation, we've already experienced this full progression. Believers in Jesus know this to be true. The problem of our sin, the spirit that works in our hearts, to open our eyes to see us, to pray, to receive Christ, to profess faith. We see the cross, we see the resurrection of Jesus as our deliverance. And as a response, right, as a result, we're grateful people. We gather for worship every Sunday. We read our word through the week. We gather with people and study the word. We're grateful people. We take this word out. That's the big picture, right? But what about the dailies? What about that next level of, of each of us individually in our own lives? How can we be thankful in those situations when God doesn't seem to be providing deliverance or a solution. Now, I realize everybody's situation is unique and is different. Surely each of us can say we have something in our lives right now that we would love to be delivered from, right? And this is when we must look to the character of God, to take our eyes off of our situation and look to God. Think of the case of the man in John 9, who was born blind, everyone wanted to know why, right? That's our natural question to difficulties. Why, God? Why is this happening? And they start to look to reasons. Was it this man's sin? Maybe was it, it was his parents' sin, wasn't it? That's why he was born blind. But Jesus reminded them it was neither option. It was actually so that the works of God should be revealed in him. The man born blind, who Jesus healed, was afflicted for the glory of God. And you remember in the life of Joseph in the Old Testament, how he suffered at the hands of his brothers, yet it was the plan of God, for it brought about the salvation of his family and people. 
That great verse in Genesis 50, verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. See, God is a God who works through and in spite of evil to accomplish salvation. This doesn't make evil less evil, but we have to remember that his plan of salvation works over and against evil. Some people may encourage you to take the easy way out, think the advice Job received from his wife, curse God and die, and you may even reason with yourself that you're entitled to do the same. Let me remind us that the Psalms, a majority of them, are in the genre of lament. Did you know that? That the majority of the 150 Psalms in this book are of lament. Remember how I said earlier, God gives us words to express how we feel in the Psalms. Well, God knows this. He knows our suffering. He gave us a book in the Bible where a majority of the chapters in here are to help us to be a comfort in our suffering, in our doubt, in our difficulty. And it's in here and other places in the scripture where we're called to trust in a God who is personal, who is sovereign, who is wise and good. And it's in our creeds and our confessions that give us encouragement as well. Part of the reason I wanted us to to read responsibly this morning from Heidelberg question 27 and 28 because it speaks to this, this second question, verse, verse, <laughs> question, easy Tyler, uh, question 28, is question, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? This, this I hope gave you encouragement. I had to stop reading it this morning for the way that God worked this truth in my heart. He says, we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. I mean, picture... This giant hand, and you inside of it. We're in it. We're in his hand. We can't even even get to the edge to look over to, to freak out about what's on the edge or what's over there that we can't see. We're held. We're held by him. We're so completely in his hand that without his will, we can neither move nor be moved. See, the more we understand his character, the more we'll see how trustworthy he is. And if we hope in anything other than God, who holds the power over sin and Satan and death, then we're doomed for disappointment, for bitterness, for ungratefulness. And it's the hope of Christ that makes it possible to persevere in difficult times when the gap between the prayer and the solution is really large. So let this bring you great encouragement this morning, church. Look at what Jesus experienced when he was on earth. He too was a wanderer with no place to lay his head. He too knew hunger in the wilderness. He was taken into custody, arrested as a prisoner and treated unjustly. And it's fascinating. It's interesting to see in these four pictures, in Psalm 107, we see similar pictures 
and the redemption of redemption in the life of Jesus in his ministry on earth, right? He feeds hungry people in the wilderness, thousands upon thousands of people he fed. He frees those that are bound by demonic powers. He healed and forgave sick people. He stilled the storms that were at the, on the sea. See, in Jesus Christ, the steadfast love of God is made known. It's manifested. In Jesus Christ, we see his love, God's love for his people. And those who have been delivered by the work of Christ, those who have been rescued, those of us who have cried out to the Lord in our trouble, we're now called, we're exhorted to give thanks for his steadfast love. So whether your life has been wrecked with addictions to alcohol or pornography or drugs or you struggle with lying or cheating, gossip, hate, whatever it may be, I hope that you can see from this psalm that those things do not disqualify you from God's rescue. Some in this psalm got into their situation because of their own foolishness, yet God still hears their cry and saves them. And when you look at the cross, you can see how this mercy is possible. Jesus dying in your place, taking every sin and covering all of it, removing all of your guilt and condemnation, and giving you this perfect righteousness that you could never get on your own, this ground upon which anyone can call on the Lord for his mercy to be delivered. And because of the cross, you are not ruled out. Jesus is able to deliver his people from any and every situation or trouble over and over again. And so where do we go from here? I don't even know what time I'm supposed to be done, but I'm going to finish up here and praise the Lord. How do we do this? How do we cultivate hearts of gratitude? See, the author of the psalm began by exhorting us to give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love. He shows us those four pictures of deliverance. And then there's 10 verses at the end here that we did not read. I encourage you to read them maybe later today, but verse 43 very last verse of this psalm is what I want to look at. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. See, how often do we stop to ponder, to consider what God has done? Probably not as much as we should, right? I mean, at the close of 2021, just, you know, a few weeks ago, I took some time one day to journal a bit and began writing down some of the things that happened uh, in my life in 2021. And before you're like, oh, Tyler's this big journal guy. You're like, so good at journaling every day. I don't, it's like once a week maybe. So don't put me up on that pedestal. Um, but here's what happened that day. I have found it helpful. I began with thinking about all the changes that have been happening you know, around here at this church with you know, Bill, our pastor retiring, and with the Randolphs leaving, and, and you know, sad for them leaving and being, but also grateful for how God is sustaining us and carrying us and leading us as a church. And then the stress of last year's uh, Costa Rica trip, having to change gears like five weeks before we were supposed to leave and how God provided a trip to the Dominican for our seniors, that was amazing. I thought about how I was able to finish my seminary classes last year, how I was, my oldest son graduated from high school and he's moved on to college. How my other son stinking broke his leg playing football, but praise the Lord, he's recovering well. I thought about the joy of coaching my daughters in their volleyball season and their school. It just, I mean, the list kept going on with these things. I was like, oh yeah, that happened this year. Things I'd forgotten 
were being brought to mind. And you know what that process did? But you know exactly what that did. It created gratefulness in my heart. Just welled up this like gratitude, like, God, thank you. Wow. 2021, a lot happened in my life. I'm sure you guys as well. Maybe you're not a journaler, again, which is fine, but what does that look like for you to consider the steadfast love of the Lord? How will you cultivate a heart of thankfulness? Maybe at your next meal, you know, you can go around the table and share what you're thankful for. Maybe you start each day instead of complaining about how early it is or how cold it is outside or how bad night's sleep you got. Maybe you could just begin with thanking God. Thanks, God, that I have, I'm breathing, I'm alive. God, you're on your throne, you're ruling and reigning. You've got me in your hand. I'm secure. Now I can go about my day. I'd encourage you to think very practically how to cultivate a heart of gratitude. And as you do that, I'm guessing you'll probably find yourself a little less bitter, a little more prone to see good in the situations we face. And we'll be growing in wisdom, as it says in verse 43. And it will have an effect also, I think, on our witness to those around us. And when we're tempted to doubt God's love, we need to look again to these pictures, these four pictures, and most especially look again to the cross to see what God has done in Jesus. The almighty power to raise up a storm and distill it, it's still on our side. It's important for us to consider these four pictures. See, they're not something that God did for these people back then, but that this transforming power of God is towards us today. It's part of the very nature of God Himself. This is what he's like. He's a redeeming, rescuing, delivering, good, kind, and powerful God, and his steadfast love does endure forever. So how can we not be thankful? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Say what? Say, thank you, Lord, for your steadfast love and your wondrous works to the children of man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we ask that you work in us. We've just been talking thankful hearts because of all that you've done and all and who you are. Thank you that you hear our prayers, that in Christ we have an advocate with you, our Father. You know our hearts. You know what we need. You know the temptations we all face to be ungrateful, to either expect or demand your blessing, and to presume that our lives should always be filled with good circumstances. Well, the reality is that it's not. Well, there are many things for which we can be thankful. Things can be difficult. People are sick. Relationships are strained. Countries are at war. And this world seems to be spinning more and more into craziness that we wonder when it will settle. But it's n- nothing is here that surprises you. In fact, it's your kind and fatherly care of your creation. We know that you are in control, so help us to trust you. Keep us close to you, remaining in you, relying on your strength in these days. We lift up those of us who are struggling. Right now we pray for John Harvard as he heads down to Houston this week for treatment and for surgery for colon cancer. Please bring healing to his body and clear him of all of this cancer. Bring your comfort and peace to Shelly and their daughters and please use this situation to bring glory to your name. We pray for healing as well for Kim Prue's sister Edith who is sick with COVID, for Ed White's brother Keith who's battling lung cancer, for Janelle Slater in this recent development of tendonitis in her shoulder and pain in her hip. Lord, please relieve her pain and remind her of your presence with her. We continue to lift up our church as we seek a new lead pastor. Please give our search committee the wisdom as they move forward with some strong potential candidates here as of late and help us to trust you in this process. 
This is your church, Lord. We're your bride and, and you will love and care for us as you have in the past and as you've promised to do in the future. And so now as we go from this place, we pray that you strengthen us for this week ahead and that you provide for us opportunities to speak of your love and faithfulness and to share this reason for the hope that we have and all of this for the glory of your holy name. Amen.